weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway of the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, March 14, 2008. I'm Leslie Taylor. Every parent tries to teach their child to treat others the way they themselves wish to be treated. But without a culture that inculcates this idea, would the ethic of reciprocity still exist? At this event in the Science and the City author series, neuroscientist Donald Pfaff, head of the Laboratory of Neurobiology and Behavior at Rockefeller University, talks about his new book, The Neuroscience of Fair Play, Why We Usually Follow the Golden Rule, the first book to describe how ethics may be a hardwired function of the human brain. I'm amused that the next event on March 18th is The Physics of the Impossible, because a subtitle of today's discussion could be called The Neurobiology of the Possible. Pending the discussion, you may prove to me that it's impossible, but I don't think so. Noam Chomsky uh, thinks that, that, that uh, human minds, human brains, are initially predisposed to utter grammatical sentences, that were, that were wired for gr- grammatical sentences. And I think uh, that we're wired for reciprocal altruism. And during the next 30, 30 or 40 minutes uh, to the outside, uh, I'm going to try and explain why. Okay, so how many people remember who Wesley Autry is? Uh, raise your hand if you remember. And by the way, before, when we were just standing around talking, I asked three highly intelligent men who Wesley Autry was, and we got zero for three. Uh, you may remember that in January of 2007, uh, a, a, a tall man left his child on the platform and jumped onto the tracks and saved a guy who had an epileptic fit uh, uh, and was lying on the tracks. And it was really a close call for both of them. And so the question is, why did he do that? And uh, what I'm going to say is that I think that he was behaving according to an ethical universal that I'll talk about, and I want to treat it not as some mystical thing, but as a natural scientific phenomenon. And I propose that human behaviors obeying an ethical universal can be explained by neuroscientists. And I want to put forward a parsimonious theory to do so. So this talk began about 30 years ago, actually. Um, My ex-wife was a librarian at Sarah Lawrence College, and she had an odd shift from 5 to 10 o'clock on Sunday nights. And so I would always take my scientific reading to accompany her, especially if the weather was lousy the way it is tonight. And uh, one night I ran out of reading. And I began wandering around, and they have an excellent section on comparative religions. And so I began looking through these comparative religions texts, and I noticed that most of the religions that I could run across, all of them actually, run across, had some kind of statement of the golden rule, what a Christian would call the golden rule, or or call it reciprocal altruism. And so out of the 25 or so examples that are in the book, or there are lots in the book, and I read 25, um, I've picked out just three from religions, Disciple is the one word that can serve as the rule for practice for all of one's all one's life. And Confucius, a long time ago, said, "Is reciprocity not such a word? Do not to others uh, what you do not want done to yourself." This is what the word means. And here you can read uh, a quote from the Bible, the New Testament. That's a positive form of the golden rule. And here is, and this is a negative form of the golden rule. Here's another one, uh, a Mohammedan, and. The bottom one from Immanuel Kant says that in the history of philosophy, there have been statements that uh, amount to the golden rule which are not in a religious context. Um, You should act by maximum that you can at the same time will will, that it should become a universal law. Okay, So I began to think, 
if every religion across continents and centuries that I can read about has some kind of statement like this, it might be an ethical universal. It's not a, a local custom like the color of gang shirts on the south side of Chicago or something like that. It's something that's likely to be to have a biologic basis, and maybe we can think about what that basis is. But um, I didn't have time to do much about it because I'm a working scientist, and uh, most of what I'm talking about tonight has nothing to do with what I do in the lab every day. And so the idea kind of percolated for, I guess, 25 years. But I was encouraged a couple years after I began reading those comparative religious texts that uh, this, this paper by Axelrod and Hamilton in Science 1981 said that even computers can be programmed to exhibit reciprocity in their behavior. There's nothing magical about the mechanisms proposed in this book. And what they did is they held a computer tournament in which they programmed computers to try to maximize the social good among computers. And they, they ran a tournament, and the program that won had just two steps, two steps in the rules for the computer. The first is if you're in a cooperative or a competitive situation, on the first move of the game, cooperate with the other guy, the other computer. And on the second move of the game, do whatever the other computer did on the first move of the game. And that set of rules generated social outcomes among computers uh, that was greater than any other compu computer strategy there was. And you recognize it as tit for tat. So if you can program computers to behave according to the golden rule, essentially, there's no need to have any mystical thoughts about it. One could think seriously about neuroscientific mechanisms. And, and by the way, the, the, uh, the tournament that they ran was playing a game called Prisoner's Dilemma. There are two guys that committed a crime, Prisoner A and Prisoner B, and they have e two choices. They can either um, cooperate with each other, and they both will not admit that they did the crime, or one can rat on the other and go free. And here, here's the payoff matrix that was set up for that game. If player A, um, let me see, if player B defects, look at it from player A's point of view. If player B defects, then player B is going to get a bigger reward the way the game was set up. And player, he gets to go free, and player A gets a minimal reward. Uh, if player A defects, then he gets a bigger reward and uh, um, player B gets a smaller reward. But remember, neither one knows what the other is going to do. And if they both defect by accident, the sum of the rewards is the minimum. But the sum of the rewards is maximum when they both cooperate. And that's the strategy that won the game. A, a remarkably simple, simple strategy. And it encouraged me to think about neuronal mechanisms uh, that would do that, that would behave that way. So the purpose of the book was first to put forth a parsimonious scientific theory. Parsimonious meaning that we don't make assumptions that we don't have to make, right? You, as a scientist, you always want to explain the most with the least assumptions. Uh, a parsimonious scientific theory of how we manage to behave according to the golden rule. And then we have to face the problem of evil, and I'll do that at the end of the talk tonight. I can explain to you, I believe, how people behave well towards each other when they do, but Remember, a lot of the times they don't, and we have to envision a balance between central nervous system mechanisms for altruism or pro-social behaviors and those for aggression and other antisocial behaviors. So how does it work? How, how does the human brain, and probably, well, let's say the human brain, uh, manage to do so many behaviors that are so good towards other people, expecting that other people will do good toward us? This theory is going to come in four steps. 
And I think three of the four steps, we really know how it works. And the fourth step is kind of obvious, but see if you agree with me. So step one is to represent one's impending action to oneself. Now, if you just look at this slide, um, it looks vaguely philosophical, as though I'm going to have to go about a theory of mind in order to say it. But no, actually, it's grounded in the history of neurophysiology for more than 60 years. It started out with the physiologist Eric von Holtz, who's a German physiologist. It was taken up in the United States by a brilliant MIT professor named Richard Held, and it's uh, currently represented best in the neurophysiological work of Catherine Cullen, who is a professor of physiology at McGill University in Montreal. And here's, here's the simplest form of it from the thinking of von Holst and the thinking of Richard Held. Suppose you're looking at a scene and you move your eyeball to the right and now the image of the scene is going to be at a different place on your retina. Did the world simply move to the left? Okay, that's the question. Did the world simply move to the left? And you know very well that you would never have the idea that the world moved to the left. And here's why. And this is proven neurophysiological theory that started out with a von, von Holtz reference theory. When the eye sends the command to the oculomotor system, I mean, when the cortex sends the command to the oculomotor system, move your eye to the right, it sends a, what's called a corollary discharge to the visual system such that the visual cortex expects the world to move to the left. And that's what accounts for a visual constancy and visual stability in a world in which you're moving. And if, if instead you move your eye to the right, not having given the oculomotor command signal, if you simply push on your eye, then the entire audience moves to the left because of the absence of a corollary discharge. Now, it's not limited to the oculomotor system. A wonderful um, neurologist named Antonio Damasio, who used to be at the University of Iowa, and is now at the University of Southern California, has extended that to theories and experiments on the brainstem so, so, such that our feeling of ourselves, our body, and our feelings of our own movements are expected. And that's why when you, fall, when you move forward, you don't think you're falling on your face because you know very well your unconscious uh, corollary discharge centers know very well that you're expected to be moving forward. You're not falling on your face. And all I've done in this first step is extend a well-accepted principle of neurophysiology to more complicated actions. I'm not just envisioning the world moving to the left. I'm not just envisioning taking a step forward. I'm envisioning what I'm going to do to another person. Step two of the theory, step two out of four, is to envision the targets of one's actions. Now, again, I'm going to hark into known uh, neurophysiology. And if you want to read about this, the person that discovered uh, neurons in the cerebral cortex of the rhesus monkey that would respond specifically to faces is Charles Gross. Um, uh, I knew Charlie when he was a, a postdoc at MIT. As a matter of fact, I should have said Charles. Uh, when he was a postdoc at MIT, and his neurophysiological work was first published in Science in about 1988. A current expert uh, in face recognition and the mechanisms in the cortex by which we recognize faces uh, is now a professor at MIT, and I'll refer to her again a little later. But faces and the recognition of other aspects of the visual field uh, is one of the best understood areas of all of neurophysiology. Um, the, the brilliant uh, Hubel and Weasel, D uh, David Hubel and Torsten Weasel, Torsten was president of my school, 
uh, did their, their neurophysiological work all the way back in the 1960s. So envisioning an action and, and seeing how you can tell figure from ground is no problem uh, from the point of view of a neuroscientist. Now, it's one thing to envision the target of one's action, but it's also you have to envision what the thing is going to do to the other person. And I'm going to start out by giving the neuroscience of the results of a negative act. This is an act where you expect the person to which you're going to do that act to be afraid. And in fact, you would be afraid yourself. And the reason I'm putting it this way, the reason I put the negative thing first, is that we know a lot about the neuroscience of fear. So the negative form of the golden rule is you should not do unto others what you do not want done unto yourself. Do we know something about mechanisms that govern fear? And the answer is yes, we do. The um, Probably the most prominent name these days in the neuroscience of fear is Joseph Ledoux, L-E-D-O-U-X. He's a professor at NYU, and he wrote a very popular book. Um, I think it's called The Neurobiology of Emotion or something like that. Uh, maybe... Um, maybe 10 years ago, and, and that's written in terms uh, that, that anybody that graduated from college, I think, would understand. And first I'll talk about the circuitry of fear very briefly, and then I'll talk about the cell biology of fear, and I'll be happy to uh, answer any kinds of questions about this in the discussion. What about the circuitry? You have the sight, the sound, the heat, the smell of a burning house, and there are two ways, two ways in which the signals of something that you're afraid of or it could be an image of yourself getting hit. There are two ways that signals that we're afraid of reach the central, the most important part, the amygdala. One way is to to have these signals go through the thalamus and directly to the amygdala. The amygdala, as I think all of you know, is a part of the ancient forebrain, which is right underneath our ears. The brain developed by newer parts of the brain evolving around older parts of the brain. So yes, lizards did have forebrains, and they did have the amygdala, and our marvelous cerebral cortex is wrapped over it now, so that um, uh, the amygdala is deep, deep, deep to the ear, underneath the so-called temporal lobe of the cerebral cortex. The other way um, of a signal reaching the fear, uh, the fear center is to go up to the cortex for further s- signal processing, and then to go over to the amygdala, and that's what gives us the physical experience of fear. The amygdala, in turn, especially the central nucleus of the amygdala, sends its outputs all over the place. Uh, the, hi- the projections to the hippocampus, another part of the ancient forebrain, uh, is required for fear memory. The output to the hypothalamus, just above the roof of our mouth, is going to affect hormones because the hypothalamus um, uh, directs what used to be called the master gland, the pituitary gland, to control the other hormone centers in the body. Uh, projections over to the locus ceruleus affects our alertness and our attention. The locus ceruleus drenches the rest of the brain with norep- norepinephrine. And the output to the central gray uh, affects analgesia. Richard Bodner, a professor and head of psychology at Queens, B-O-D-N-A-R, uh, is an expert in how neurons in the central gray uh, allow analgesia. The importance of analgesia is if you're in a fight. Uh, let's say you're a male elephant and you're in a fight and the other guy just wounded you, but you have to keep on fighting or if you're suffering in some other way and you're hungry and you still have to look for food, you have to have enough analgesia, reduction of pain, that you can carry out the other instinctive behaviors that you must carry out. By the way, when we're able to ignore fear or or forget fear, that is largely the activity of the prefrontal cortex, both inhibiting electrical activity in the amygdala and inhibiting 
the outputs of the amygdala to those other brain regions I just said. And so, for example, people with post-traumatic stress disorder are thought to have a shortcoming in the output of the prefrontal cortex such that they cannot turn off the memories of fear from some event like 9-11 or, or some other, uh, or some other uh, fearful event. So much for the circuitry of fear, and all of that, a lot of that comes from the work of Joe Ledoux and another man named James McGaw, who's a professor at University of California at Irvine. Once we get down and dirty with the amygdala, the neurons in the amygdala, here's a neuron and here's a neuron, we can also talk about the, the neurochemistry of fear and the biophysics of fear that's going on in those amygdala neurons. And so, for example, the excitatory transmitter glutamate is one of the most ancient transmitters in the vertebrate nervous system. And it's signaling into the amygdala through calcium signaling pathways is absolutely essential for normal fear experience. Not just simple transmitters, but also small pieces of proteins called neuropeptides operate on neurons in the amygdala. A perfect example in the amygdala would be um, BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. I can't remember how big it is, maybe 20, 25 amino acids. And it's signaling into the amygdala through what's called kinase cascades, phosphorylation reactions that eventually end up in the amygdala, I mean in the uh, amygdala cell nucleus and on the membrane for fast signaling. Uh, those are two examples of how we know a, a chemical, either transmitter or neuropeptide signaling to individual cells in the amygdala uh, supporting the experience of fear. So, on the negative side, uh, well, regarding step two, on the negative side, we know how it works to, to experience fear, uh, and we can anticipate the other person experience fear, and we can experience fear ourselves, and we also know how we image other people. But now comes the key element of the theory. And about a year after I read all of those things in the Sarah Lawrence College Library, I realized that you could explain how a person does reciprocal altruism with a ridiculously simple thing. It's to blur the target's image with one's own image. Now what happened is I got the idea and I wrote it down and I put it in a drawer. I've moved two or three times since. And uh, when uh, the brilliant editor of Dana Press, uh, uh, Jane Nevins, approached me about this book, I brushed off my ideas, I brushed off my references, but then I wanted to get I knew it was going to be easy to blur images, for reasons I'll say. But I wanted to talk with somebody that actually works in the field of face recognition to get an idea of how, how you would carry this off. So I spoke with her on the phone, and she said, well, look, it's really easy to blur two images. One is you add noise to the cerebral cortical activity, and the other is if, if you keep the, the signal-to-noise ratio the same, but you alter the timing, since signaling in the cortex is highly uh, dependent on timing, millisecond by millisecond, thousands of a second, messing up the timing is enough to do the job. So it was up to me as a neuroscientist to say, can I present to you in the book, can I present in the book and to you tonight uh, reasonable, easy-to-imagine ways of adding noise to cerebral cortical activity, thus to make it harder to tell the difference between two images. And I'll give you three examples. If we didn't have inhibitory neurons in our um, nervous system, we would have epileptic fits all the time. Okay. In other words, if it was pure excitation, all these neurons that are connected to each other would be driving each other nuts. So inhibitory mechanisms in the central nervous system are absolutely essential for normal neuronal activity. 
normal ner nervous system activity. And the most famous uh, inhibitory transmitter is named GABA. I won't tell you the full chemical name, G-A-B-A, -A, GABA. There's another one called glycine, but it's not as popular. All you would have to do in order to increase the noise like crazy would be to turn off your GABA neurons or even reduce them uh, in decrementally. Uh, and the noise in the, uh, in the cerebral cortex would go up to a level where it would become unmanageable. Another way is gap junctions. All of you read in the newspapers and in, in magazines <clears throat> about the communication between neurons by synapses. And you, you all know that the pre-synaptic uh, ending, the axon, will let out some neurotransmitter which will go across a cleft of about 20 angstrom units and will have some kind of electrophysiological effect in the postsynaptic neuron. But actually, that's a fairly chancy event, and it's fairly time-consuming, too. It, lots of times, uh, synapses are set up so that one little guy uh, releasing his one little transmitter onto the, onto the postsynaptic neuron uh, would not do anything at all a way of ensuring that neurons will send excitation to each other is to have gap junctions between them. And these gap junctions are tiny holes, little barrel-shaped holes in the membrane which are formed by a specific protein called connexin 36. And it allows, a gap junction allows a charged ion to flow directly from one nerve cell to the next. It's a very safe mechanism once you put it in place. And gap junctions can be formed and disformed. The staves of the barrel, it's six staves in every little barrel, each one is, would be a protein. They're actually sitting there in the cell, and all the cell has to do is form them into a barrel that matches the barrel on the next cell, and you've got a gap junction. So if you wanted your cerebral cortex to go nuts and blur images, all you would have to do would be to allow your connect in that particular neuron or those particular pairs of neurons to allow that, that gap junction to form. Electrical activity will go up, add noise, because it's uncontrolled by the stimulus. It's just going up all over the place. Those are two fundamentally different ways. This is to turn off GABA. This is to change the position of a protein in, in, a, in, a, in a neuron. Thirdly, uh, there's a neurotransmitter that you've all heard of, acetylcholine, um, which gives extremely powerful inputs to the brain uh, from an, a place in the midbrain that I won't talk about because it's unpronounceable. And from the basal forebrain, there are cholinergic inputs all over the cortex that are incredibly complex and incredibly powerful. And all you have to do is let those cholinergic inputs loose, and you can raise noise activity in the brain as much as you want. So uh, I don't know that any of these or all of these are the actual mechanism. If someone here has done something by accident that's nice today to another person, not by accident, of course, uh, I don't know whether you're using any of these or some other one that I haven't listed, because I could probably go on for another 45 minutes giving realistic examples or if you're using more than one of them, and I'll get back to that. Another thing is to alter the timing of neurons slightly. That's easy, because all you have to do is alter the synaptic delay. As I said, when um, a nerve cell releases a transmitter onto the postsynaptic neuron, nothing happens right away. You can alter postsynaptic delay like crazy, and even a few milliseconds will do the job. So I'll make an analogy um, to a computer. If you just say to yourself, is it easy, easier to improve a computer's performance or to, to reduce the computer's performance, even to break it? Obviously, it's easier to, to break a complicated mechanism or to make it perform worse than it is to make it perform better. And that's why 
when I had this idea. I, I knew I had the mechanism, a theoretical mechanism by the tail, uh, and we just wrote about it, of course, in this book. And step four is common sense. What I've tried to say is that the, step three, the first three steps are all grounded in solid, non-mystical, well-published neurophysiology. And the fourth step, I think, is obvious, but the reason that I'm not giving mechanisms for it is decision theory is still more in the hands of experimental psychologists than it is in the hands of neurophysiologists or neuroscientists like me. And so, but I'll, 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 I'll take it for granted that you believe that once we've got the first three steps done, that it's, capable, it's, it's possible for a person uh, uh, to make a decision. So that's the four-step theory. Um, my assistant is a, an artist, a, a, a graphic artist, and so we've made a cartoon that illustrates the four steps. First, this guy is imagining himself doing uh, an act, and we're going to make it negative because we're still in the negative part of this talk, and what he's going to do is shoot this big guy right in the chest uh, and notice that the big guy's bald and has a striped shirt. And what Susan Strider has done now is to have our would-be assassin imagining the image from his cerebral cortex, from his visual cortex, of this guy. And so far he looks the same, but he's going to morph into an image which reminds the guy of himself. That's supposed to be the blurring process in this cartoon. And having imagined that there are some similarities because of this blurring process or, or uh, phase change or whatever it is, um, because he can now imagine the guy un indistinguishable from himself, uh, he throws away the gun. So according to that, this cartoon, this guy is behaving according to the negative form of the golden rule. He's not doing to another person what he would not want done to himself. Is this an elegant theory? Um, its claims to fame would be that no special abilities are presupposed. I haven't used one philosophical, one religious, one mystical uh, a thought or, or idea in this talk. Uh, secondly, as I said a minute ago, it's easier to make a mechanism work lousy than it is, I should say, lousily, uh, than to make it work better. Thirdly, there are many ways to throw off cortical perceptual function. I named three of them, uh, but we could go on and on and on. And finally, all of them can work, and maybe they work in combination. Maybe it's combinations of them, and finally, it might be different in different individuals. It's not required that we all use exactly the same route. It's only required that we reach the right outcome if we're going to be good citizens. So far, all I've talked about is why don't behave according to others as we don't want done to ourselves, but what about the flip side? The, the, remember, the Christian form of the golden rule would be love one another as even as you love yourself. And it turns out that most people think that the fundamental structures of friendly social behaviors are rooted in sex. That's the most primitive form of pro-social behavior. Um, and so I've worked a lot on that. Then my friend Barry Cavern, who's a professor at University of Cambridge in England, feels that maternal bonding is also a, a sort of a I should, should call it paternal bonding, but he does say maternal bonding. I should say parental bonding, but he does say maternal bonding. Uh, and that's what's most studied in, in uh, neurobiology. And that that's an important bauplan or fundamental social behavior. And finally, can we generalize this to all social behaviors? And so I'm going to go through some positive stuff real fast because it's just nitty-gritty neuroscience. We, we can tell you down to the nearest neuron and the nearest gene, how animals do sex behavior. And the simplest one is a female four-footed animal that does a vertebral dorsiflexion, 
coupled um, with a standing posture to allow the male to fertilize and to allow her to support the weight of the male. And what we've shown is we know how steroid hormones coordinate brain function with the rest of the body to ensure reproduction appropriate to the environment. And this was all in an MIT press book called Drive in 1999. And we know the circuit for it, uh, that, that vertebral dorsiflexion, that mating behavior of the female, is triggered by cutaneous stimuli from the male as he mounts. There's a circuit that goes all the way up to the midbrain. At the top of the circuit, estrogen turns genes on and sends an estrogen-dependent signal back to the midbrain, which sends a signal back down to the spinal cord to tell the spinal cord what to do. That's how the behavior is arranged. Up here, we have gene expression. And over a period of about 15 years, uh, my lab uh, collected a laundry list of genes that has the two properties. One is the estrogens here, binding to estrogen receptors, turn these genes on. And the second property is that those genes foster female reproductive behaviors. So over a, a whole generation of work, including my lab, uh, has worked out exactly how sex behaviors work. In other words, if we're going to love one another as we love ourselves, when you get down to love as sex, uh, we have a lock on it. Maternal behaviors as well. Uh, from a whole generation, uh, if you want to read a book about it, a really nice book is by Thomas Insel, I-N-S-E-L. He's the current head of the National Institute of Mental Health. And Michael Newman, N-U-M-A-N, who's a professor at Boston College. They wrote a terrific book. And maternal behavior is incredibly complicated. There's nothing less than five or six hormones on the job. And from the hypothalamus, oxytocin, remember the friendly hormone, prolactin is important for lactation, uh, the gastrointestinal tract uh, yielding CCK, working through CCK receptors in the brain. Adrenal glands are important, yielding progesterone and cortisol uh, receptors in the brain. And finally, estrogens and progesterone working in the brain. Interestingly, uh, optimal uh, hormonal preparation for maternal behavior in a female laboratory animal is high levels of estrogen and high levels of progesterone, but then you have to make the progesterone levels drop. And it's upon the dropping uh, of the progesterone that if you put nesting material in there uh, and pups, uh, baby pups that are sort of orphans, uh, the female, even though she's not a mother at all, she may not even have her ovaries in, but if you gave her the estrogen and dropped the progesterone, she'll make a big nest and she'll run around and gently retrieve the pups and assume a nurse, nursing posture as though they were her pups. Finally, I'll be brief about this. Um, uh, social recognition is crucial for all friendly behaviors. And friendly behaviors in mice depend upon olfactory cues. And what Elena Kolaris and I worked out is that there's at least four genes working in what we call a four-gene network that support individual recognition leading to friendly behaviors. And the four genes are... Uh, in the hypothalamus, estrogen receptor beta and oxytocin, and in the amygdala, this should say amygdala here, uh, estrogen receptor alpha and the oxytocin receptor. And uh, the findings show us that oxytocin comes down the pike, binds the oxytocin receptor, which allow for a, a, an efficient receptor, a re reception of pheromone cues, which allow a mouse to recognize another mouse as a friend. So from the point of view of positive social behaviors, we have a tremendous amount of neuroscience at the sexual level, the parental level, and at the level of individual recognition. So at this point, in this first the major part of the talk, I claim to have explained simple, believable neuroscientific me mechanisms for the negative form of the social uh, of behavior, uh, uh, obeying the negative form of the social rule and behavior 
obeying the positive form of the social rule, of the, of the golden rule. But you could say, this guy's out of his mind. If there have been five attempts at the genocide since the Holocaust, Cambodia, Kosovo, Rwanda, Somalia, and Sudan. And then, in addition to genocide, we have what I'll call in quotes, sadly in quotes, ordinary criminal violence. Okay? And neuroscience, so I have to face the problem of evil or a theory that explains why we behave well uh, could be thought to be sort of defunct. The regular neurobiology of biologically regulated aggression is not so hard. Suppose we consider intermale competition for food, mates, or territory. Um, neuroscientists and animal behaviorists have been studying that for decades. And um, what's a good book about it? Well, Conrad Lorenz, uh, the Nobel Prize winner, wrote, wrote one a long time ago. Oh, but Randy Nelson at, at Ohio State University has written a wonderful book about it, in case you want to follow up. And the, in humans, there's a, the lifetime curve of murders of unrelated males by males follows the curve of testosterone levels in the blood. Goes up suddenly around the age 13, 12, 13, 14, begins a long and slow slide starting around uh, uh, age 30, and the, the average testosterone in any given culture and the murders of males by unrelated males follows the same curve. So with respect to individual aggressive acts by males against males, uh, we know a lot of neuroendocrinology and quite a lot of neuroscience. And here's some of the neuroscience. What testosterone does is it turns on genes in cell groups and turns on activity in cell groups that promote aggression and it suppresses activity in cell groups that inhibit aggression. So here in the amygdala and in this unpronounceable name right here, it turns on uh, testosterone binding to testosterone receptors, turns on the vasopressin gene which fosters aggression and testosterone inhibits uh, gene expression and electrical activity in the septum and if you, if you damage the septum, the animal goes into rage. I made a lecture trip to Hungary once, uh, and the last animal I touched before I went to the airport was a septal lesioned animal. And I'd gotten used to them, and I thought I knew what I was doing, and I put my hand in the cage, and I went to Hungary with a bandage on my hand. Um, so they're really, really vicious. So that's these, these um, endocrine mechanisms and these nervous system mechanisms are meant to address the neuroscience of an individual male's aggression against another male. As we move from individual to organized social violence, neuroscientists don't have a clue. And the book talks a lot about this because the book and the references, the, the further reading at the end of the book, refer a lot to the famous historian uh, Barbara Tuckman, uh, the historian of war Donald Kagan, and Barbara Ehrenreich, the very popular writer. You may remember her, her recent book, Nickeled and Dimed. But before Nickeled and Dimed, uh, she had a book that, that explained the anthropologic history of war. And she's a good scientist. She actually got her PhD in biochemistry uh, from Rockefeller University. But then she turned into a popular science writer after that. Now, even though we don't have a clue about organized social violence, I would like to point out that good psychiatrists and neurologists and psychologists and neuroscientists have come up with ways that you can envision violence starting out in adolescent boys and ways to prevent it. And what volume t uh, 1036 of the New York Academy of Sciences uh, enunciates is the public health approach of James Gilligan. When James Gilligan was a professor at Harvard Medical School, he was also the chief of psychiatry for all the prisons in Massachusetts. 
And then he came to NYU, and he's a professor at NYU now. And he wrote a book published by Thames and Hudson about um, maybe 15 years ago. And volume 1036, the ideas of that book, are based on his ideas, a public health approach, a primary approach, which is good neonatal care, small schools, and a lot of other things. Primary approaches are applied to the entire population of young males, maybe, maybe everybody. Secondary are where you sense that certain people are at risk. And in the future, we're, going to be, we're probably going to be looking at pharmacogenomics. If we see a kid that's at risk, uh, we're going to be able to do something that's not pharmacologic or maybe mildly pharmacologic. We clearly want people to avoid alcohol if they're prone toward violence and a lot of other things, all of which you can read about in volume 1036. And then after the, after the guy has done something ugly, we have pharmacology to uh, hark back on. But what Jim Gilligan and other behavioral scientists like Howard Racklin out at SUNY Stony Brook would say is to avoid a punitive approach. Uh, you have to have the capacity to avoid punitive approaches. And what J Jim Gilligan is quoted as saying is that prison makes violent men more violent. He'll say that 10 times per minute. So we can do something about violence. So let's face it, we've got solid mechanisms that I purport to have explained supporting good behavior, and we also have the problem of two levels, of at least two levels of aggression, individual aggression and social aggression, of socially organized violence, and really everything else in between. And so obviously what we're doing now is searching for ways to explain a balance. And this is going to be a balance of traits. And what a trait is in behavioral science is that it's a concept that organizes a constellation of stimuli that are coupled with a constellation of responses. And so this was uh, based on the theory of the oldie goldie psychologist uh, Gordon Allport. He was a professor at Harvard. And there's a famous book, a textbook by Hall and Lindsay. I can't remember their first names. But uh, the, the example here would be fear of strangers. And I lifted that from Hall and Lindsay, but I put in some more things, uh, stim uh, strangers that we're afraid of. And then we have a bunch of responses. And the nature of the response depends upon which stimulus it is. But this trait predicts that for any of these and many other stimuli, we're going to be able to make these responses and perhaps other responses. And now, if we have a bunch of traits that are not only genetic, certainly some of them are genetic, but they're also environmental, what I have to do to wrap up this talk is to seek a balance between genetic influences mm -hmm. on pro-social friendly behaviors and antisocial traits. Uh, and I also have to envision interactions between genetic and environmental influences. So given the fact that we can have neuroscientific um, uh, mechanisms to explain individual acts of good behavior, behavior that obeys the golden rule, and individual acts of testosterone-fueled violence, can we step back from our facts and give you a big picture of how a working neuroscientist would try to enunciate in one slide how, how this works? Clearly, there are some genes that are likely to dispose us toward friendly behaviors. And uh, in current neuroscience would point you toward the estrogenic genes, uh, estrogen receptor genes, and also oxytocin and oxytocin receptor. There are clearly other genes that might predispose us toward antisocial behavior. Uh, some forms of serotonin receptors, for example, uh, probably vasopressin and vasopressin 1A receptor are likely to dispose in the absence of any environmental influence. But that's not real life. We're not genetic slaves. 
especially at times of neonatal care, good or bad, and, pre- and pubertal experiences, uh, fun or not fun, we can be turned around. And the way I've tried to picture it just for one slide is to have the environmental influences in the forms of lenses, especially neonatal environment and, and adolescent environment. And sure, if we start out uh, with a lot of friendly disposition and we're given a really friendly environment, well, we, then we can run for president or something. Um, if we start out with a lot of ugliness and our environment makes us even more ugly, then we're likely to end up in a penitentiary. But suppose we start out with a bright, friendly young man uh, and his environment stinks. And where I lived once in a, a, a town outside New York, which I won't say, where I noticed, I was raising very young children, that the brightest young men turned into the most successful criminals. And so we moved. Um, but, <laughs> um, uh, but we all know that you get the sense sometimes with some of these career criminals that they're, uh, but for the grace of something, they're but for the grace of Don's theory, uh, uh, go I. That, that if we'd had that kind of environment, we would have had a tough time surviving as well and becoming a lawful, upstanding citizens. Likewise, suppose you take a kid who's genetically endangered. Let's say it's a kid with a predisposition to alcohol or a predisposition to violence. And if you give that kid a terrific environment, the lens of environment may make that person into an altogether better person. So uh, for the benefit of one sort of overall big picture theory, that's going to have to serve, even though I can't give you hordes of facts to underlie it. So in summary, a human behavior that behaves uh, obeys an ethical golden ethical universal, the golden rule, can be explained in a neuroscientific theory that does not presuppose any unusual CNS capacities. And regarding negative and positively valence acts, we know a lot about the mechanisms controlling fear, sex, and maternal behavior. And beyond that, all we have to do is uh, envision this blurring of images that I talked talk to you about. What about antisocial behavior? We do understand a lot about testosterone-triggered mechanisms in individuals but we have not comprehended at a scientific level socially organized violence. And finally, gene environment interactions produce balances uh, which differ among all of us and clearly across society between pro and antisocial behavioral tendencies. To find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org. 